Heavenly Father, we thank you for these children. God, we do ask that as they hear from your word today, uh, that you, by your spirit, would bring about conviction of sin, a realization um, that they are in need of a Savior. Lord, it is a supernatural work for this to happen in anyone's heart, uh, whether they're three or 13 or 103. So God, we ask that your spirit would do it, that you would bring about true faith and repentance in the lives of our kids. And uh, God, as we look to your word now, we ask the same, that your spirit would bring about repentance and faith in us. Strengthen those who are weak. Remind us, Father, to look to Jesus today, who is the author and perfecter of our faith and the one that we proclaim. In his name we pray, amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10 today. This is page 815 in the black pew Bibles in front of you. Matthew chapter 10. And one of my biggest fears as a father is hearing what is for me one of the most terrifying phrases I could ever hear from one of my children. Now, you might think it would be something like, Dada, Damon's bleeding. I've heard that. Or Dada, Damon's in the street. I've heard that. Or Dada, Damon's on the roof. I haven't heard that one, but... Uh, not even that one is the most terrifying. Or, Dad has a, or Damon's in the bathtub with a toaster, right? Something crazy like that. No, it's not. Those aren't the most terrifying phrases. For me, the most dreaded words I hear from my kids is something I've heard multiple times over the years. They come to my ears usually in the middle of the night when I hear the pitter-patter of feet coming into our room and approaching the bed, usually on mama's side, and they say, mama, I threw up. Those are the most dreaded words to me. In that scene from Home Alone, you know, when the parents realize at the beginning that they've slept in, you know, they, they've overslept their alarm, and boom, they're out of bed. We slept in. That's what happens in our house. It doesn't matter how, if I fell asleep Five hours ago or five minutes ago, when I hear those words, I'm up because you know you're in for uh, a long night. Those are the most dreaded words. The news, when the news hits my ears, it, re, it results in immediate action, immediate change. It's, it's like a bolt of lightning. It's a jolt to the system, right? It doesn't matter how many sugar plums are dancing in my head. Uh, I'm up and Adam when those words come to my ears. Seven months ago, one of my coworkers was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. She was a fellow officer of mine. Two weeks ago, she died. This, this week, I met with a guy here at the building to talk about that mess in the corner and the water coming in our building and getting estimates and quotes. His name was Mike. In the course of our conversation, he told me, he asked me, you're a man of faith, right? And I said, yes. And he said, me too. I'd really appreciate your prayers and the prayers of your church because I've just been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. 
this is a jolt. This has been a jolt to my system these last couple weeks. The thoughts of sin and death and heaven and hell and eternity have been on my mind more than they have in a long time. Now, why do I start this way this morning? It's because I've, I've been forced to confront these things, and they've had a jarring effect on me in a good way. They have j- almost like jolted me awake from some kind of days that I feel like I've been in. Suddenly, all the things that I thought were important these last couple weeks in my life don't seem as important anymore, like money and food and personal comforts. Because when you're confronted with the news, with some life-altering news, it really seeks, serves to reorient your priorities, does it not? Have you experienced this, a death in the family? I know some of you have. All of a sudden, the things that we thought were so important lose their importance. This kind of spiritual sleepiness inevitably results in a lack of personal evangelism for me. It's only when I'm confronted, I'm jolted awake with these eternal realities, when all of a sudden I realize, what am I doing? There are people all around me who are hurting, who are dying. There are eternal things going on, and I am consumed with worldly things. When we fall under the spell of the world, our thoughts, our eyes, our life patterns become more about maintaining a certain level of comfort, and we avoid situations that make us uncomfortable. And man, talking about Jesus, evangelism, it's uncomfortable, right? It makes us uncomfortable. For these past few weeks, I've had to ask myself some hard questions. What really does occupy my mind most of the time? What has my life really been about lately? Or here's one. What keeps me from making gospel proclamation a regular part of my life? Not something that happens once every few months when the time is right and the the conversation just happens to go there or somebody asks me a question about church, but a regular part of my life. For the past few weeks, I've been reading this book, Evangelism as Exiles, and I'd like to just read a quote from it to, to begin this morning. It was incredibly convicting for me to read this quote because it answers this question for me. What keeps me from making gospel proclamation a regular part of my life? This is what the author says. The dominant reason for our lack of evangelism in America isn't the fear of death. It's not being killed, right? We aren't in danger of being imprisoned or tortured. Rather, we're just beginning to face soft persecution. We face being ignored or excluded. We face ridicule or reviling. If we open our mouths with the gospel, we run the risk of others thinking we're closed-minded or unloving. And at least in my own life, the mere potential for such shame The possibility of being made an outsider hinders me from practicing bold evangelism. Shame and the fear of exclusion combine like nothing else to quench our spirit of evangelism. There it is. Shame and fear. 
I'm ashamed of the message. I'm afraid of man. These are both true for me. I'm assuming they're true for most of us as well. We need a jolt to the system. We need to be awakened. Today, my goal is for us to find courage and comfort in the words of Jesus as he prepares his disciples for evangelism. Now, we don't live in the same context that the disciples lived 2,000 years ago. We're not in danger of being persecuted necessarily or imprisoned or killed for our faith, but the words of Jesus are just as relevant for us today as they were for them 2,000 years ago. So let's read our passage, and I want to give us five promises we can cling to as we leave here to proclaim the gospel. Let's read Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So... Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I want to give us five promises we can cling to as we leave here to proclaim the gospel. Remember, shame and fear, those are our biggest problems. Number one, don't be ashamed of the message, the truth will come to light. Jesus tells his disciples, verse 26, have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Many times the reason we don't speak truth into people's lives is because we are ashamed of the message. We've got to be honest about this. I'm not saying we don't believe the message. I'm not saying we're ashamed of Jesus necessarily. But if we're honest with ourselves, many times we know that speaking the message of the gospel, that people are sinners in need of a Savior, and Jesus has come to be that Savior, and it requires repentance and faith on your part, this message comes across to people as wacky, especially in our modern American culture. We know this, don't we? How many times have you thought about talking to someone about Jesus but decided not to because Quite frankly, you just didn't want to deal with the awkwardness and the strange looks. There's a lot of other stuff going on. Why would we want to de deal with that? We know the message will probably create more problems for us than it solves, so we keep our mouths shut. It seems old, antiquated, and unnecessary, quite frankly. 
When most people we interact with are healthy, college-educated, good, middle-class people, doesn't it just seem kind of melodramatic to start talking about sin and death and some guy who died for their sins and rose from the dead 2,000 years ago? But in these verses, Jesus wants us, he wants his disciples to know that they do not have to be ashamed of his message. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, in the open. What I whisper to you, proclaim from the rooftops. Yes, you may experience ridicule and embarrassment. Yes, people might start avoiding you. Yes, people might think you're the crazy Christians who's trying to be all extra all the time. That's okay, because there is coming a day when all of it will be made clear. The truth will be known, so do not be ashamed of the message of Jesus But church, this is where we must have the courage. We must find the courage and boldness to actually open our mouths and start talking about Jesus. The message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power and wisdom of God. And this seemingly foolish message is the means that God has designed to bring about the salvation of his people for his own glory. God does not design things so that the, the, the most powerful and the most logical explanation is always the right one. He uses the things that are weak, the things that look foolish. He uses the people who are weak, the people who look foolish, to bring about his purposes. Why? So they don't get the glory. He gets the glory. This is how God has designed it. Yes, it seems foolish, but it is God's designed method for salvation. There are a lot of young, hip Christians who have bought into this idea that we have to wait around for the perfect moment to talk about Christ. Or they have to build a relationship with someone to earn the right to be heard. And I'm not against those things. Don't hear me throwing all that out and saying, just go beat people with the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. We need to build relationships. We need to know our neighbors. We need to practice hospitality. But how long does it take to build a relationship with someone before you actually start talking to them about eternal things? If we're honest with ourselves, I think sometimes we just use building relationships with people as a cop-out to avoid evangelism because we're ashamed of the message. So friends, who are those few people in your life that you need to have a frank conversation with? Maybe it's time to invite them over or out for coffee and have a serious discussion about the claims of Christ, because they might come to you tomorrow and say, I've been diagnosed. They may not, you may not even see them tomorrow. They could be gone today. We need a jolt to the system. Let the foolish message land on their hearts with all of its weight and pray that God will bring the fruit. Don't worry about the results because 
There will come a day when the message will be vindicated. All will be revealed. Proclaim it from the rooftops. All people will one day know the truth. What is hidden will be revealed, and what is whispered in secret will be proclaimed on the rooftops. It will all be crystal clear. God's message will prevail. Don't be ashamed of it. Number two, don't be afraid of people. They can only kill your body. Don't be afraid of people. They can only kill your body. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Let's be honest, church. We're not in danger of being killed for talking about Christ. We're just not. Not in this country, not yet. So if this is true for the disciples who really were in danger of being killed, and most of them would be killed later, how much more is it true for us who are in danger of so much less? Don't be afraid of those who can destroy your reputation. Don't be afraid of those who can only ridicule you and make fun of you or think you're crazy. Don't be afraid to lose friends and be perceived as uncool or out of touch. But it's one thing for me to stand up here and tell us not to be afraid of men. That's easy, right? I can say, don't be afraid of men. But how do we get there? Because we all are. We just tell ourselves not to be afraid. Jesus gives us a pointer here in this passage when he says, rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We could talk about the fear of God for a long time. Does this literally mean that we are to be afraid of God? Don't fear people. Don't be afraid of people. Be afraid of God who can destroy your soul. It's the same word. There's no hidden Greek trick here. It's fear, fear, same word used throughout this whole passage. So yes, that is what it means. Be afraid of the judgment of God. It means more than that, but we can't minimize what Jesus is saying. His point is simple. If we fear the temporary pain that comes from men more than the eternal fire of hell, then we have things completely backwards, right? Our priorities are totally out of line with His. So yes, we need to be afraid of God, of His judgment. He can destroy us in an instant. He does not owe us anything good. What God owes us is judgment. Now, of course, being afraid of God's judgment isn't the only way we are to fear God. After all, we're a gospel-centered church. We believe the gospel. Jesus himself bore God's judgment, bore the punishment for our sin on the cross. So the fear we, we experience when we consider God's judgment quickly leads to relief and gratitude and the hope we have in Christ. And what does all this have to do with evangelism? Here's the key. Fear is directly tied to worship and obedience. What you fear has everything to do with what has authority 
over you. Think about that. What you fear has everything to do with what has authority over you. When we fear someone, we are giving them authority in our lives, or maybe they already have authority in our lives. We operate in accordance with that person's authority. And this isn't always a bad thing. In fact, most of the world operates this way. Children fear their parents, so they sometimes choose to obey. That's not a bad thing. They should fear getting in trouble. You might fear being written up, so you do what you need to do at work. You're not a complete slacker, right? There is a general fear that we all hopefully have, unless we're some kind of sociopath, of going to jail. So we generally obey the law. This is good. This, is a, this kind of fear is good. It's God's common grace to man. But when we regularly neglect talking about Christ because we are afraid of people, we show that people have more authority over us than God. That's the point. People become big. God becomes small. People take place of God on the throne of our hearts. So do you see how fear quickly becomes a form of idolatry? When we are afraid of people more than we fear God, they usurp God's authority in our lives. When we have a proper fear of God, not just of His punishment, but the kind of fear that says, God is my ultimate authority, I must obey God rather than men, then we find courage to open our mouths. Our fear of God must overpower our fear of man. Eternal realities such as death and heaven and hell and sin and judgment and forgiveness must take precedence over any temporary pain we are afraid of. We see how this plays out in Acts 5. Let me just read the short story here in Acts 5 about the uh, apostles had been arrested and then they were miraculously let out of jail and they were brought before the leaders. When they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in, his name, in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. That's Jesus' blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. This is how it works. They feared God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. If we don't obey God, we will fall under His judgment. And His judgment is worse than anything you can do to us, high priest, Sanhedrin, emperor, 
How do we get this kind of overpowering fear of God? How do we do it? Friends, we've got to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Yes, we look to the judgment. Look to God's judgment. We see it in Scripture. We feel it in our hearts. We know that we, we are sinners with what we deserve. And we look to Jesus who rescues us from that judgment. He bore that punishment, bore that pain and suffering, and He did it so that now we can be rescued from that fear of death. What's the result of that? Our hearts turn in worship, in awe, in thanksgiving, in praise, in gratitude, and we have a holy, reverent fear of our Savior, of our God, our Father, and we long to obey Him like a good parent. Kids want to obey their parents. Yes, they're afraid of getting in trouble, trouble, but they love them. They want to obey. They want to please them. It's the same way with us when we are viewing God rightly. Holy, reverent fear. Don't be afraid of people. They can only kill your body. In America, they can't even do that, let's be honest. Don't be afraid of people. They can only ruin your reputation. They can only make fun of you. They can only exclude you. Fear God. Number three, the rest will go quickly. Don't be afraid of being alone. A father cares for you. Don't be afraid of being alone. A father cares for you. Verses 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Many times the social exclusion we face from evangelism is enough for us to rarely, if ever, talk about Jesus. But here Jesus wants us to know that God is intimately involved in our lives. If he cares about little birds the smallest little birds, how much more is he involved in the lives of his children? That's the point. God cares for you. He sees what you're going through. He is with you. You are not alone. This is a common and often repeated promise through Scripture. I'm just going to read a few other passages from, from Scripture about God being with us. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isaiah 41, fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. Zephaniah 3, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Matthew 28, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hebrews 13, I will never leave you or forsake you. Romans 8, 
Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, or things present, or things to come, or powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Friends, don't be afraid to be excluded. You are never alone. God is with you. Number four, don't be afraid of your circumstances, because God is sovereign. Those same verses, verses 29 through 31, says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Sometimes we're afraid of how our lives might change if we are bold in evangelism. This is huge for me. If I tell this person about Jesus, man, my life's going to get so much more stressful I might actually have to meet up with them and have a follow-up conversation, right? Or maybe even have them over and I don't know if I like them that much, to be honest with you. Maybe I have to serve them a little more. Do I really want to get that involved? I mean, if I go here, this is kind of like a rabbit hole, right? What else is this going to lead to? Or maybe it's something worse, it's kind of trivial stuff, but maybe we might lose our jobs. I think about that with my job. <laughs> I'm a government employee in a pretty, uh, you know, controversial, controversial profession, and I work at a school. I mean, talk about, you know, getting in trouble for talking about religion. Maybe we might lose our jobs or upset our family members or just face direct opposition. So rather than deal with those uncomfortable circumstances, we just stay quiet. But friends, the sovereignty of God is one of the most comforting doctrines in all of Scripture, especially when it comes to evangelism. And yet, how often do we operate as though God is surprised about the events of our life? God is never taken by surprise. He is in control. Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of our good Father. He knows every hair on your head. These statements are meant to bring us great comfort in life and in evangelism. We don't have to fret and grasp for control. We don't need to worry about our reputations or how others view us. We can lean on God because he sees it all, he knows it all, and there is a purpose for everything. The parable of the growing seed from Mark 4 is a great example of what I'm talking about. The short parable, Jesus says this, says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. What's the farmer's primary role in this parable? He's just a faithful sower faithful sower. He gets up in the morning, he faithfully sows. Then, what does he do? He sleeps. He rises, sows, 
sleeps. Rises, sows, sleeps. How does the kingdom of God grow then? He doesn't even know. Just what Jesus says. The kingdom of God grows. He knows not how. It's not his job to know how. It's his job to be a faithful sower. The sovereignty of God in your life, the sovereignty of God and the salvation of souls is meant to be a great comfort to us, friends. God will sovereignly save His people. The question for us, the question for you today and me, is will we be faithful sowers? John 3 says, The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's not our job to raise people from the dead. We're just called to faithfully sow. God will sovereignly save His people. Number five, don't be afraid to suffer. It confirms your union with Christ. Don't be afraid to suffer. It confirms your union with Christ. Verses 24 and 25 and 32 and 33. It's kind of like bookends to this passage. Let's, let's read 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, that's a false god or a blasphemer, how much more will they malign those of his household? Skip down to 32 and 33. So, whoever acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever de denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Church, we are told many times in the New Testament that those who belong to Christ, will suffer. We will. And the suffering takes many forms, ridicule and reviling, being laughed at, being excluded, being thought less of. We will face persecution. This should not surprise us. And in fact, when we suffer, for our Christian faith, we are simply following in the footsteps of our Savior. We are walking the road that He walked before us. Those who identify with Jesus will identify with Him in His suffering. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This is why Christ tells us to count the cost. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. I've come to bring the sword. I've come to bring division between family members. Christ didn't come to make your life comfortable and easy and just, just add Him on to your middle-class life. No. Those who belong to Jesus will suffer. But those who refuse to walk the road of suffering show that they actually have no part in Christ. 
That's the point here. Let me say that again because we really need to think about this. Those who refuse to walk the road of suffering with Christ show that they actually have no part in Him. Suffering, you see, is a good barometer for our Christian lives. Is your life basically pain-free? Why is that? Oftentimes, it's because we're not being obedient to the call that Christ has called us to. Those who belong to Jesus will follow in His steps, and they will face ridicule and hurt and rejection and loss. Yes, we may not face imprisonment or bodily harm yet, but if we are not even willing to endure far less than that, then the expectations Jesus had for His disciples mean even less to us now. But those who have been united with Christ by faith are also united with Him in His suffering. Church, our Savior has gone before us. He walked the road of suffering. He bore shame and physical pain you and I may never know. He was mocked, beaten, tortured, hung on a cross naked until He suffocated. If that is how the Master our master was treated, why are we so afraid of so much less? Why do we go to such great lengths to avoid it? Those who belong to Him walk with Him in suffering, and here's the key, we will be with Him in glory. We walk with Him in suffering, and we will be with Him in glory. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. What does our text say today? You acknowledge me before my Father. If you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my Father. You will be with me in glory. If you acknowledge me before men with all of its suffering, all of its rejection, guess what? There's coming a day where you will be with me in glory. But if you deny me, if you do everything you can to avoid suffering, you refuse to walk the road with Jesus, I will deny you. You have no part in me. We will suffer with Christ, but we will be with Him in glory. I want to end with a quote from this book. It's a great book, Evangelism as Exiles. Um, tremendous, it's easy read, highly recommended. Here's another quote about what it means to be united with Christ in the mission of evangelism. He says this, Now, we might wonder, if this is what union with Christ means for the believer, why would anyone sign up for such a life? 
Where's the dignity and the privilege in being chosen by God if that calling destines you to a life of shame and ostracism in the world? Why would anyone sign up for this? Why would anyone want to be associated with this Jesus? Then again, what did we Christians expect when we chose to follow a king on death row? But when we realize our sufferings are like His, and when we realize Jesus' rejection and His cross weren't a mistaken dead end, but the foreordained on-ramp to resurrection and glory, then our faith in God explodes with the hope of our own future glory. The logic of the apostles is simple. If we share now in Christ's sufferings, then we will share in His glory. This is the ground of Christian joy, a living hope. If we share in the sufferings of Jesus now, with all of its pain, we will share in His glory. Friends, the end reward is worth it. There will come a day when everything will be made right and suffering and fear and rejection and all the social exclusion will be traded in for the full glorious presence of Christ. So let's open our mouths. Let's not be ashamed of the message. May we not be afraid and silenced by our fear. May we be faithful sowers. Let's pray. Father, I need to believe this more than anyone, anyone else in this room. I am so fearful. I'm fearful of looking like an idiot. I am fearful of people making fun of me or thinking less of me. And I suspect that there are other people in this room who would say the same. And so, Father, I pray, God, that you would instill in us, you would move us to a fear of you that drives us to gospel proclamation regularly. May we open our mouths about Jesus and all the fumbling and all of the seeming folly that comes with it, God, that you would use our feeble efforts to accomplish your great purposes. I pray for Mike, who I talked to this week, Pray for healing for his body, but more than that, God. Pray for repentance and faith for him. That his hope would not be in treatments or in a cure for cancer or in St. Peter, but his hope would be in the resurrected Lord Jesus. He would turn to you in repentance and faith before it's too late. Father, we thank you for your word and how it changes us, and we pray, God, that we would be faithful sowers this week. In Christ's name we pray, amen.